Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today, I'm speaking with Jane Allison, author of the book, Neander, Spiral, Explode, Design and Pattern in Narrative. Jane, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I got to say, that's one of the best titles of any book that I've read for this show. Well, that's, I'm very happy to hear that. I don't even remember how I came up with it. I think I just kept, that was my sort of working title and it ended up sticking. Yeah. So those are sort of three of the many design uh, patterns that you, that you discuss over the course of the book, which is really a book about narrative structure. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about kind of how you became a writer and how you became interested in narrative structure? Oh man, how I became a writer. Uh, let's see, I, I got there through various pathways. I had originally been someone who wanted to be um, a painter and illustrator, and that's what I used to do. And then I was a classicist, so I was working in, in ancient Greek and, and Latin literature. And sort of despite myself, I, I bailed out of a PhD program in classics, tried doing some visual art, and then found myself instead beginning to uh, write a new version of the ancient text I had been trying to illustrate for children. So how does that sound for convolution? Um, but, but ended up uh, various different sorts of jobs led me into writing professionally. And then one day I simply found myself writing fiction and fiction led to memoir and led to other kinds of fiction and very quickly led to a point at which I realized that um, what I had been taught about narrative structure, which was not a whole lot, was, um, was of the sort of conventional school of you know, this is how you should form a narrative. And it was something derived from antiquity, which I admired since that's what I had studied, uh, of course, but, but no longer was working for the kinds of things I wanted to write or even the kinds of things I really, really loved reading. And that's when I began to delve into what, what really could make a new sort of structural sense um, or how I could reinterpret what I had been reading to, to sort of come up with a theory for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you really take aim at Aristotle and the poetics in this book, which I feel like uh, trashing the poetics is almost as popular as teaching the poetics these days. But, um, but what's so interesting to me about the poetics is it doesn't even uh, really work to describe so many of the story structures in the ancient world. It's not like even, even he was writing a, a kind of comprehensive look at narrative of that time. He's really looking specifically at Athenian tragedy. Yeah, he was really looking at tragedy, and that was the only part of what he was looking at that I was in turn looking at. And I don't, I don't really feel that I was trashing him. What I feel that I'm, I'm trashing or, or critiquing, to be more fancy, is, is the way that what he had to say about um, the structure of ancient tragedy uh, just got sort of taken in sideways as a way we should be writing novels when a novel has really a very little to do with an ancient Athenian tragedy. So I actually admire Aristotle 
in not in all ways, but in in the fact that he was working as he does um, so inductively, and he looked at tragedies and he sorted out what made the ones that worked work, and found in them this sort of commonality and structure. So he was working in that way. It was not a, a pre-imposition of of how something should be structured. It was well, let's see how did these things get made? What do they have in common? So I admire I admire him enormously for that. Um, you know, he's a scientist, but what I what I found really very oppressive was the way that starting, not really starting, but John Gardner made it extremely popular in the art of fiction, we ended up just uh, sort of adopting um, the, the, the Aristotelian idea of tragedy and the way it can be shaped and applying that to fiction, stories and novels when they're just totally different art forms. So that's the part of Aristotle, the way it was taken that I feel I wanted to push back against. When you were starting out as a writer, did you take a lot of like creative writing workshops? I started writing, um, I actually started writing, uh, I, was a, I was a professional writer at Tulane University working for the president of Tulane, writing his speeches and letters. And that already made me um, sort of working imaginatively. I was, you know, using his voice. And <laughs> so that's what got me to, to start writing fiction. And then I'd only written a few stories before I applied to grad school. I went to Columbia, which I think you did also. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that was it. I went from zero to, to being in a graduate program. So I didn't have any of the undergraduate background or any of the sort of weekend writing workshop experience that a lot of people have. So it was, yeah, so I went right into, into that um, and started writing a novel pretty much right away. And did you find, I mean, I'm not asking you to, to call out any of your specific professors, but did you find the approach to creative writing that you encountered in grad school amenable to these various ways of structuring narrative or was it pretty much, you know, these are the kind of uh, few models that we're going to work from? I'm trying to remember whether anyone ever taught me a model. I, I don't, you know, I don't, I feel as though um, I know that my, my undergrads, they definitely are top models and it's often even before college, it's, it's high school, but I don't, I don't remember being, well, honestly, I don't remember being taught all that much. I had excellent, excellent professors there. Mary Gordon was one in particular. And she, if anything, um, this was in the early 90s, she was someone who would sort of rail against the, the fact that, that we use the term narrative. She thought there is so much that is literary that is not narrative, meaning not uh, you know, the sort of uh, conventional position of a narrator who was telling a story and it's plot-based. And, and that was you know, revolutionary for me. She had me read things that have stayed with me forever, including one that I quote every day, uh, and that's Marguerite Draws the Lover. Um, so I think that, I think that my, the ideas I have now, um, many years later about different kinds of structure, I didn't even almost begin to have them because I don't think I even had a vocabulary yet. But someone like this teacher, Mary Gordon, she gave me um, ways to think even before I knew sort of what the rules were, she was already showing me other things. Mm. So let's talk a bit about this book, Meander Spiral Explode. Um, did you intend this book primarily as a work of literary criticism or primarily as sort of a tool for creative writing? I uh, intended for it to be something in between those two. I don't, I don't feel, I'm not, a, um, I'm not a scholar, I don't have a PhD, so I think to try and pretend that I was doing literary criticism would just make me blush, so I, I couldn't say that. But I also knew it was beyond just a craft book, um, and I shouldn't say just a craft book, but I mean it wasn't, it's not a how-to book by any means. There aren't exercises. 
uh, pardon me? There aren't exercises in no, other words, right. yeah. No, there are no exercises and there are, there are no instructions of any sort. It's all, it's really just, uh, it's, you know, it almost borders on a kind of personal memoir of reading because it was um, me looking at different things and sort of exploring how I had found new ways of understanding inventive narrative um, based on what I, what I had read and how it had affected me. Uh, so not really theory, not really craft, somewhere in between. Mm. You open the book with an anecdote about the designer Eileen Gray. Um, could you explain what you find so appealing about her approach to architecture? I certainly will. And I've been, I have been trying to write a novel about Eileen Gray for so long. And she's in, in the time I've been trying to write a novel about her, she's gone from being almost unknown to a superstar. And I'm hoping I waited out a little longer. That's <laughs> known again. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I started researching her some years ago. Um, and I, I don't, I don't want to go into too much of the backstory, but she, she is a, she was an Irish designer in who worked really almost the entire last century. But she designed a house on the south coast of France that got the attention of, uh, of kind of rock star Le Corbusier. And um, he ended up co-opting the house and doing all these horrible things to it. But when she designed the house, it was one of the first houses she had designed. And she was not formally trained as an architect. She was a, a designer and an artist and had done tons of furniture and all sorts of other things, but not so much architecture. So she really was teaching herself. Um, but she, the one thing she did in particular in this house that I found so, so just mesmerizing was um, she, she, she worked sort of from the inside out. And so she would uh, study how one moved through a space. So she had a housekeeper, Louise, and her own self, and she would, and she would, she would mark out how each of them moved through an apartment, a space, to see just like what the pathways were of actual lived life, and then she designed accordingly. So she sort of worked from this, this living choreography and designed around it. And she made um, this one house. She made uh, the, the furniture is almost all kinetic, and things can kind of pull out of the walls or lift from the floor or come down from the ceiling, and it responds to the way the the sun is moving, the way the windows can open or shut. So it was this really organic way of designing, uh, working, working from lived pathways rather than uh, trying to force them by way of the architecture. There's a line in your book where you write, a story is as much house or garden as song. Um, I love that line. I'm not exactly sure what it means. Um, could you explain what that line means to you? <laughs> sure. Uh, I think what I mean is that um, a story or a narrative, a novel, whatever you want to call it, is something that you experience in time, um, but it also has the sort of occult visual sense. I mean, you, you absorb the thing, of course, through your eyes. I mean, in the day of podcast, I suppose it's different, but um, if we talk about just reading, you absorb something through your eyes, so you have a relationship to, to the text and what it looks like and the white space around the text and, and the size of the book and so on. Um, and then the words are transmitting to you images, of course. Um, but even when you have finished reading the thing, to me, it, there's always been a very strong sense of having traveled through passages. And of course, words and text that, that we, we refer to them as passages, but there is a spatial sense in that that I feel is um, something that my, my body absorbs when I'm reading. I feel as if I'm you know, moving through dark tunnels or instead I'm taking some kind of aerial view over something. So um, the way that, that a text can feel both visual and, um, and, and, and obviously temporal, it just makes me feel very much that it's not so unlike walking through a garden, walking through a building, walking through a city, 
or if you decide to kind of remove the visual aspect, listening to a song, um, focusing entirely on the on the temporal aspect. So that is what I think I meant is that it's it's a an, an experience that can be um, that can be kinetic, that can move through time, that can leave in your mind a sort of visual trace that makes it to me more like the experience of say going through a garden. Mm -hmm. There's a chapter in your book about color, and at first I thought you might you must mean some some other definition of the word color than the kind of everyday definition, but you really do mean color. You really do mean, you know, the ways that an author uses different color descriptions can really create a very strong impression in your mind, even if you're not fully consciously aware of them. That visual sense is very strong when we're reading fiction. Yeah, and I think the, the color section is actually one, I think I put a note in the book, um, which was I really wish someone else would, would take this up and study it further, or maybe I will later, but I haven't done it yet. But it's it can be pretty subtle, but I, the examples I use in the book, because they were the ones that really affected me the most, uh, were W.G. Sebald's The Emigrants, uh, which is a, 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 a book that for every person I think I've ever asked, and there's now, I don't know, 50 or so people I've asked who have read it. I say, what, what color do you think the book is? What does it leave behind? Everyone says something between gray or sepia uh, because it just has this sort of sense of dustiness and ash and age. And, and he doesn't use those words, gray or sepia, but that is the illusion that he gives based on the way he describes and the sorts of um, figures he's, he's, he's looking at. Uh, another another book that affected me in terms of color was Tobias Wolff's um, uh, uh, the oh my god I'm forgetting the name the, the Barracks Thief yes and in that book I I started to become aware of how color was appearing and there was so little of it it's a really kind of grim minimal book in many ways but whenever there was color it ended up being red or yellow or orange and so I you know I went through and a methodical kind of obsessive compulsive way and counted the color words and and saw that sure enough he used very very few and then the ones that he did use were kind of clustering in certain areas of greatest intensity and, and violence and passion and and I was just I was just sort of struck that he had managed to um like like plant in me the sense of the absence of color and then the specificity of the color that there was without without drawing attention to it it was sort of working in a subliminal way um, but it gave the book a, a temperature. And anyway, so I began to realize, well, you know, if we're, we're being planted with all sorts of uh, all sorts of visual stimuli when we read, color is surely one of them. And, and color can have all sort, you know, it can have temperature and it can have associations. So I think that it, I think it would be really terrific if someone else would study color in, in narrative and see how it can be deployed on a kind of subliminal level. And you're right, not as a symbol, uh, like like the the green in the Great Gatsby, but as as a sort of uh, more uh, subtextual sort of uh, influence. Yeah, exactly. So not not kind of um, focusing on the color and thinking about it symbolically. Uh, no, not that at all. It's really just having a, a kind of trace left behind the eyelids of that of that color. Color is so fascinating. I've been teaching a course this semester with for undergrads that I called pretentiously the sensorium in which we're examining um, or sort of reinvestigating the way our, you know, what our senses are able to perceive and trying to go beyond the optical and the oral. Anyway, I could go on that. That's another subject for another conversation. But, uh, but color came up a lot and we were talking about the ways that um, color exists well beyond symbology in, in, our, in our readings. It sounds like it might be a subject for another book. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
one of the kind of mind-blowing claims in your book that I'm now having read it totally convinced of is that many narrative patterns mirror patterns in nature. Um, what are some examples of this? And what were some of the sort of first examples that made you aware of this connection? I, my mind also got blown when I, when I began to realize this. And I'm, I'm, still, I'm still trying to, I mean, I still keep testing the idea. I mean, I've written the book, but I do still keep thinking about it and trying out different aspects of it on, on students in particular. But uh, the, I, I realized that when I had been, over the past 20, whatever years, reading narratives that were often not based on the dramatic arc, but had some other form that really felt like a form, it felt like a shape, it did not feel sort of random or slice of lifey. And I'd been, I'd been studying those texts and thinking about them and coming up with my own kind of private language for what sorts of shapes I thought they had. But then when I started writing this book, I thought I really need to know a whole lot more about patterns if I'm going to write a book that's about pattern and narrative. So I started reading more. And one thing I read was this wonderful book called um, uh, Patterns in Nature. And, uh, and, and I just had this sort of shock when I, when I realized that there are certain patterns that occur in nature again and again at all scales because various laws of nature, uh, gravity and geometry and so on, make them happen. Um, and so the ones that are called um, by some writers, nature's darlings, because they recur so often are the spiral, the meander, um, fractals, didn't actually exist when this guy that I was reading had wrote the book but did soon after. Um, the wave, of course, is one, but that is really what the narrative arc is. Um, and explosive shapes, so radial shapes, things that seem to be organized around a center, whether they're radiating it around it or kind of spoking right, right out from it. One of the things that you criticize about Aristotle's uh, kind of plot wave is that it has a sort of implicit masculinist bias. Um, do you see a sort of femininity to a shape like the meander or the spiral? You know, maybe on a parallel of like Virginia Woolf's idea of a feminine sentence? Mm. I, I would like to, but I don't think it's fair because I think that the texts that first, not all of them, but a lot of the texts that first got me thinking about different shapes were written by men. So if we want to sort of disassociate men from masculinity or, or women from femininity, then I suppose you could say that. Um, it's really tempting. I would like to say, oh yes, this is a sort of feminist writing, but I, I don't, I don't think I can buy it. I don't, I don't think it's really true. I mean, certainly, um, uh, I mean, like Sebald, going back to him, he uses all kinds of meandering forms and, and, and cellular forms. And so those are not the masculine arc at all. Um, but then again, women, lots of them, like Marie-Vadonne uses something that I call the wavelet because it's sort of many little teeny tiny climaxes and not you know, one great big one. Um, but no, I, I think just to answer you, no, I don't, I don't think I could do that even though I would mm -hmm. like. Sure. Um, when I hear the word meander used to describe a story structure, it kind of makes me think of epic structure. You know, uh, Odysseus's continually delayed return home or, you know, maybe uh, Ahab's search for the white whale, uh, taking him all through the Atlantic and Pacific. Is that what you're thinking of when you think of meander or is it something else? I think that's a fair way to see meander. I think that's for sure happening in the Odyssey. Um, the Odyssey, though, because it has that... Um, well, I mean, so many narratives don't have one single shape. First of all, many narratives don't have these natural shapes at all. They have other shapes. And so I was really just looking at the ones that I thought did have that. But, but often you'll find in a narrative more than one. So um, I think in the Odyssey, 
uh, I would say it has this, this sort of meanderingness in terms of its plot line and how it takes him so long to get back from Troy. But, but the way it's, it's structured, um, you know, as, as the, the, the final version of the narrative we finally got, um, it, it has quite a clear dramatic arc at the end, you know, once he does get home. So the whole second half of the book when he has gotten home and then he is fighting against all of the suitors by doing his various secret plotting. And there it's just absolutely dramatic. We're watching things happen and it's all re reaching a point and then it's gonna settle down after that. Um, but, but, but yeah, the, the, the part of the story where he is trying to get home and it's just episodic and one thing goes to another and it takes so long, then for sure, that's, that's meandering. Yeah, now that you mention it, um, Moby Dick also has that, that, you know, it meanders for a while, but then those last 50 pages, they really get into a point. Yeah, um, yeah. So what are, what are some maybe more classical examples or, or, you know, less classical in that sense of the word, what sort of more uh, emblematic examples of the meander structure? What are some of the, the examples you use in the book? One of the examples I think is one of my favorite books of all time is Nicholson Baker's The Mezzanine. And, and so that's a book that I guess came out in the 80s, but it's all, um, it's a very short novel, kind of pretending to be a memoir, um, but, but it's all about one person going up an escalator during one lunch break. And yet the, the, you know, the beginning of the book, he's just about to get on the escalator and the end of the book, he finally has gotten you know, up the escalator and is now turning around and looking back. But before that, there's nothing but little tiny steps and distractions. And so you can just sort of see you know, maybe one step forward and then, oh no, all these memories that circle us back somewhere else. And then another step forward and all these other things take us somewhere else. So it's just this extraordinarily delayed motion. Um, that is one of my absolute favorite examples. And Marguerite Duras, whom I, I'm always quoting, is another, The Lover, where uh, there, there are several different shapes working in that book. But one of the ones that's most striking is, um, is the meander because she, she will she has a very clear storyline running through the center, but then she will just digress endlessly on, in, in many different directions. And yet, you know, you do keep moving forward ultimately, but the digressions take up more space in the, in the, in the short novel than the actual main forward line takes up. Spirals seem in some ways related to, mea to a meander. What, what's the difference there? Well, that's a good question. I was talking with my undergrads about something yesterday that I've always seen as a spiral and they were making a case for a meander. And I thought, okay, I can see your point. I mean, mostly because there isn't a clear arc um, and there isn't such a clear or energized linear movement. There's more wiggling going on. This sounds a little bit abstract, I realize. But, but for me, a spiral is a bit more organized than a meander because you can, you can have sort of regular repetitions of a certain type but you're continuing forward. Whereas a meander can just go off in quite extensive, extensive digressions, um, you know, discursions. So similar, but, but I think in terms of the way time moves, a spiral is, is more likely to have a kind of clear, a clear forward or backward, depending on, you know, what, what, what the sort of story is, but a more, a more clearly identifiable pattern of repetitions as, you know, when you see a spiral, you can see that kind of regularity of form. So it's the idea of repetition with, with difference. So you, when you return to the same event several times, but it's related in a slightly different way, you learn more information about the event. Yeah, you know, the more times like it's described, that. something like that. So, well, something like that. I think one of the examples I use in the book, and it was the first, the first book I read that made me think about it, was um, a classic that many, many, many people have read, and that is House on Mango Street, the Sandra Cisneros book. 
And, and that one, it took me a while to sort it out, but I could, you know, it, it always begins a little bit intuitively. I feel something is recurring or a certain shape is happening. And then I have to start analyzing it closely. And in that book, which is written in these many, many little vignettes, I, I started to try and see, okay, how are these vignettes organized? And I, you can see pretty quickly, they are moving forward chronologically, but there was this recurrent pattern of um, the sorts of vignettes. Like there would be several about the main character and her family. And then there would be a bunch about other kids in the neighborhood or other people in the neighborhood. And then we return to the main character and her family, but she, now she's a little older. And then there'd be several more vignettes about the people in the neighborhood, but now they're all older. And so I just got this sense, it's sort of like a carousel feeling where I'm going, I am going forward, but we're kind of circling around. Um, I'm, I'm drawing with my hands now in the air, which you can't see, but, um, but circling around and moving forward, advancing in time, but with this kind of uniformity of repetition that made it have more shape than something that would say be a meander. It seems to me that this spiral shape is maybe particularly good at organizing a, a story that's told very consciously retrospectively, like either a memoir or a sort of imagined memoir, because you can kind of circle back to the same memories, even if uh, events aren't occurring in a sort of uh, spiral pattern, you can remember them in a spiral pattern. Would you say that a spiral is particularly good at telling those sort of memoir-like stories? I do think so. I think you're exactly right. And um, essayists do talk much more fluidly, I think, than, than fiction writers have about shapes like this. I mean, they talk about braided essays, and I think a braid is sort of a, there's a version of a spiral, really, when you think of, you know, DNA strands, that's spiral as well. But I think, yeah, I mean, and anyone who writes memoir knows that you've got, there's often, there are often recurring obsessions, recurring moments, and so you might kind of visit one and then continue thinking elsewhere, but then return to it and then continue thinking elsewhere. So yeah, I think it is partly in a, you know, a part of how we look back on our lives uh, to, to be fixed on certain things and, and have to keep revisiting them and maybe changing a little bit how we see them. But that does feel to me spirally, yeah. This is sort of stepping out a bit, but I wonder how has this kind of investigation into these different story structures affected your own writing? Well, that is a great question. Um, so I mentioned the Eileen Gray and the book I've been trying to write for a hundred years. So uh, I've, I've, I, one of the reasons I, um, you know, I was doing all this research. I had written a version of the book. I decided to put it away because I was not happy with it. I wrote three other books, and now I'm back with this one and determined to to finish it. But but exactly now, feeling as though having done this work on on shapes and and patterns in narrative. I, I feel, it's kind of funny, I feel partly as though I'm obliged to follow through as I write this book and partly resisting that because that's as bad as being obliged to follow a narrative arc. So, but I am realizing that the, the way I have been writing it and the way the book, um, what, it's, what, it's, what its concerns are, it does actually have a, something like a spiral uh, deep within it because I'm working with the two main characters, the Eileen Gray and the Le Corbusier, and they are both uh, thinking about their pasts. And so it's the final week of their, I won't bore you with the details, but, but it is exactly what you suggested before. It is uh, a reflective um, sort of faux memoir, but more, more kind of interestingly, or maybe more, um, I don't know, gimmickly, the house that she designed on the south coast of France, the one that's the center of the story, does have at the at the center of it a spiral staircase that is, you know, sort of revealed as glass on the on the roof, and the whole story revolves around this house. So, so I think I, I'm finding that um, 
that, that probably lurking within this project all along was a shape like that. And now having written the Meander Spiral book, I'm, I'm feeling like I really want to try and exploit that now that I've discovered that that is at the heart of this. I want to sort of make sure I'm, I'm deploying it in a way that's at least a little bit conscious. Sure. Um, so the spirals are, you know, roughly circular shaped, perhaps. And another roughly circular pattern that you look at is the explosion. Um, I, I feel like my questions are all sounding a bit samey, but um, how is a how is a explosion different from a spiral? When you, they're so not samey, and they're all such totally reasonable questions, and they're ones I kind of keep checking myself with all the time. So this is what I think. An explosion for me is, you know, you just think of the word explosion. There's this sort of idea of fragmentation or, or, or even violence kind of at its heart. And the, the examples I use in the book, the one that is maybe most familiar is Chronicle of the Death Foretold, the Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, and that one to me feels like an explosion because you know, in the very first pages, um, you already have, you already, ha you already know that someone is going to be killed. And the rest of the book, you're just watching bit by bit as he gets killed. So there's almost no forward movement in time. I mean, the whole thing is an hour or two or something like that, but, but you keep getting a different angle on it. So, you know, this is what one citizen in the town saw and remembers, and this is what another one does. And to me, it almost feels like a panopticon where the center is this action, which is the killing. And then the book itself is this sort of pie shaped thing around it with all these different views upon it. Um, but but so the way I would measure the difference between spiral and, and explosion in this case is that the, the amount of time that we're moving is so very little. You know, it's, it's really not a narrative that is stretching out over a great deal of time, like, like even say the Sandra Cisneros book, you know, we do cover some years in that book and just kind of advance through these repetitions. In this case, all the repetitions are all focusing in on this one very brief incident. So, so there's a, there's a sense of fragmentation in the book, but there's also um, there's also just one incident is absolutely central that we just keep revisiting in different on, from different angles. When you were talking about spirals, you mentioned that you could think of it as spiraling outward or spiral spiraling inward. Inward. Does a similar thing apply to explosions? Could could we also think of some of these stories as being implosions? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, yeah, I think so. And, and I don't know, maybe this is not the right way to respond, but I was just thinking of the other, um, the other example or one of the other examples I have in the book is Mary Robeson's Why Did I Ever, which is, in, which is written in these hundreds of little teeny fragments that seem to have almost no connection one to the next. And so it feels as though what you're looking at is the aftermath of some great violence. And um, and you know, it turns out there is a great violence at the heart of it, but it's one that's being so avoided and instead there's just a sort of proliferation of other stuff. So that may be, that may be sort of something that is exploding outward from a thing that, that the author knows about, but the reader doesn't. And so for the reader, it's more a matter of trying to sort out what is that thing at the center. So I suppose mm -hmm. I could see that as a kind of an implosion perhaps. One of the things I find so useful about this book is that, um, it's pretty common, I think, to hear a story described as being told in fragments. But one of the things you really make clear in this book is like, there's many ways to arrange fragments in a story. <laughs> and like, that's the arrangement of the fragments is almost, you know, as important or more important as the fact that the story is told in fragments. And in a way, almost every story is told in fragments. They're usually called chapters or something like that. But but um, you, you really draw our attention to the ways that different 
arrangements of, uh, of blocks of text uh, can really uh, change our experience of a story. Yeah, that's true. And, and it's also, it's not even just the blocks of text, it's the spaces between the blocks. Um, Dinty Moore writes a beautiful essay, uh, I think called Positively Negative, which is about, about making use of or, or trying not to cheat using spaces between blocks of text, which, which we call crots, which is a hideous word, but it is you know useful. Um, but it's true because so much happens that can be productive when you go from reading one bit of text to another bit of text. And, and ideally each bit of text, whether it's just a little paragraph or a line or a long, or, or I, I wanna, I think you're right about chapters, but I think I'm gonna, I wanna stick to sort of smaller ones where it's more visually apprehensible as um, blocked and, and white space. Um, so, but I think ideally each one of these little units, this little sort of prose stanza uh, has its own, it's like an island, it has its own integrity. I mean, because otherwise, why is it floating all by itself? And so I think that it can be such, a, it can be such an exciting way of writing because you're, you're making each one of these little blocks have its own, you know, its own um, gravity, its own completion, its own form. And yet, because it's part of a whole, there has to be something in it that can that can be found to have had energy that's led you to the next one over a white space in which you might be thinking or wondering like, oh, what are we gonna get next? So um, it's, it's, it's a more or less a nonfiction book, Maggie Nelson's Fluettes, which has become extremely famous. She works with uh, many, many, many little fragments and, and it's really interesting how they're arranged because she'll, I think she goes, on, um, she goes on, on certain, there might be a cluster of fragments that are all on a similar theme until that theme becomes exhausted. And then you'll start another set, but then you'll find that one set of fragments is actually making you think of some that you read you know, 10 pages earlier. So the mind has to be so active when reading a fragmentary text, a good fragmentary text, because you're, you're kind of constantly weaving and making connections and pulling threads and drawing together the whole tapestry and trying to get a sense of the whole. And that can be a whole other kind of movement, totally unlike plot. It's where your mind is making connections and um, you know, and the fragments are giving you the energy and the reasons to do it, but you have to, you have to pick it up and do it. Yeah, I got the sense that a lot of the books that you described and stories that you described kind of require a lot more of the reader than a reader is typically asked to do in terms of making sense out of the material they're reading. Is that something that kind of interests you as a reader? Yes, absolutely. I, I have to say that if I read something and, and nothing is being asked of me, I just get word out of my head and put it down. So <laughs> yeah, no, and, and as a teacher of writing, um, I, I find it to be true too. And it's a good way to, it's a really good way to teach because it helps students, younger writers, uh, realize that they can, you know, that they, they can become so much more um, seductive if they leave things out and they're asking the reader to, to take part because then you've got this complicit person on the other side of the page. And when you're describing these kind of very experimental story structures, you, you're very clear that it's not just formal experimentation for formal experimentation's sake, but it's, it's that these different ways of telling stories actually allow you to tell different stories, right? Yeah, I think so. Or, or it could be that the ones that I decided to look at, the ones that, well, I guess the ones that had really affected me and therefore I began to study them and, and find that what I saw to be the structures within them, they had all affected me, not just because they had these interesting structures, but because they were powerful and important stories. 
Um, so Jamaica Kincaid's Mr. Potter or Kaz Phillips Crossing the River or David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, which I really love, even though people think it can be gimmicky. They, they, you know, they, they ha they're doing something. They are relaying something. They're making me think and they're giving me some real vision of humanity that matters. Um, and the structure happened to be the one that seemed to be needed to tell that particular story. So I, I know that, um, you know, we, I, I said earlier that there aren't writing exercises included in the book, but I am curious about how you apply this material when you're teaching writing classes, because often the structures you're discussing take place over the course of, you know, a, a, an entire novel, which might be difficult to kind of encapsulate into a writing exercise. So how do you kind of apply uh, these insights in, in the classroom? Well, in the first case, um, you know, we're always reading. I mean, the, the courses I teach, we're always reading a ton and, and also writing. So uh, for instance, I had students, undergrads yesterday, um, young ones, I mean, intermediate, so sort of 19 year olds who were reading a story, read two stories and, um, and they, you know, they, their, their job was to see what kinds of structures these stories had, what kinds of patterns they had. And so they read really, really carefully and they ended up doing drawings and making charts and, and really doing kind of wonderful work. So, so just doing that, just reading other work and coming up with an idea of what's underneath it and what makes it, what gives it movement and form, you know, that's, that is already an exercise. It isn't a writing exercise, but it's the kind of thing that you have to do to do any kind of writing. And so I know because I talked to them afterwards that um, that they having done that and gotten that engaged in the story and seeing how it was put together, you know, I could see their eyes, you know, busily thinking about what they are going to do when they write their next story. So it's sort of a, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a just, I don't know, I suppose it's like studying any other kind of um, like a visual art where you 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 study the way something is made and you're kind of secretly building up things that you might then try without me giving an explicit exercise, like write a spiraling story. Mm -hmm. I think that would be bad. I think that it would be bad to say that. That's almost like that, that's sort of starting with a, it's almost as um, prescriptive as saying, follow the narrative arc. So I'd really rather students discover the, the forms that they're, you know, that they are discovering and what they read and then discovering from their own rough draft, what kind of form might be lurking within it. And then, and then becoming more conscious and say, right, I guess I am following this. Now I need to do it a little bit more controlledly. I'm curious about the reception of this uh, book. I actually found out about this book because the playwright Erin Courtney posted a, a picture on her Instagram of uh, a stack of books that she was teaching in her playwriting class and included your book. Um, has your book gotten, I mean, have, have, well, maybe I'll put it this way. Have you heard from people outside of, you know, kind of the, the world of fiction who have uh, said that, your book was helpful for them in whatever creative pursuits they were doing? Well, they have actually, which is really nice because I would not have expected that at all. Um, but yeah, I've heard from people in, let's see, in in music. Um, and I think actually, well, I know, but I haven't, I haven't heard the piece of music that there was a composer who composed something and named it after my book, which is <laughs> what happened before. <laughs> um, I, I hope he's having success. Uh, no, I have heard from people, I've heard from playwrights, from musicians, from choreographers. Um, um, that's all I can think of at the moment, but yes, definitely people in other art forms, really kind of surprisingly so, but, but it's nice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I cannot recommend this book enough just in terms of giving you so many different uh, ways to think about narratives in, in whatever artistic medium. So I'm not at all surprised, uh, even though you say that you are. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, 
so I've already taken up so much of your time, um, but I wonder if I might ask you one last question, which is you mentioned the one uh, book that you're working on about Eileen Gray. Do you have any other projects that are coming up that listeners might want to know about? I have something that is so far from coming up. It's all of four pages on my laptop. <laughs> so, so no, <laughs> not yet. That's going to take a while, but it's going to be very different. Um, no, this, this, the Eileen Gray Corbusier book is, is the, is the, is the one and only it's my great love. And I would like to send it into the world and I'm really planning to get it out of here in the next few months. Um, well, but, fantastic. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be on the lookout for that. It sounds like a fascinating book. Great. Thank you. Well, Jane Allison, thanks so much for being on, being on New Books in Performing Arts. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you, Andy. I really enjoyed it. I was very surprised that, that, I, that, that you and your listeners could be interested, but, but quite gratified. 